2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Kelly Evans, and ahead today on The Exchange. Markets are shrugging off the hotter-than-expected CPI numbers this morning. The inflation data just don't seem to matter the way they once did. We'll look at why and what's most important to watch right now, like energy prices which boosted the inflation print. And our guest says prices could still surge above $100 a barrel before year end. He joins us to make his case. And it's been called the new Detroit. But one of our guests says San Francisco is actually a great opportunity right now. Our commercial real estate CEO explains why he is so bullish on Yes!, the Bay Area. And you saw it right here on CNBC. Elon Musk speaking to our own Eamon Jabbers moments ago as he was leaving Capitol Hill to talk AI and how to regulate it. Musk actually left early. Bill Gates, Sundar Pichai, and many other tech titans are still in the meeting, which is supposed to be ending right about now. Eamon is outside with his microphone and his sneaks, ready to grab them as the first meeting officially draws to a close. We'll bring you any more sound bites as we get them live. First, let's start, though, with today's CPI print. My next guest says it's a reminder that inflation isn't dead. Investors are shrugging it off, though, especially that higher-than-expected core print. The 10-year Treasury yield initially jumped to 4.35 percent right after the data crossed. But look at that. We're down 10 bips, 425, actually lower than yesterday at this Point. So is the focus shifting away from inflation data to more high frequency gauges on the economy? Let's discuss. Here in studio with me is Stephen Stanley, Chief US economist at Santander US Capital Markets. Also with us is our senior economics reporter, Steve Leesman. Welcome to you both. Uh, Stephen Stanley, I I always take you for a bit more on the hawkish side of the inflation that's story. Fair. Imagine that's still a little yeah. bit the case here. So Um, Would you say that that markets are wrong to shrug this off, or do you understand that maybe this is becoming a moment of a little more cyclical nervousness?
3: Well, I think this is just a point in time where inflation has come off quite a lot, right? So we were running 0.5 and 0.6 per month on core CPI last year. We got 0.2s in June and July. I think people were really eager to say, okay, inflation is done, and we're back up to 0.3, but it's still not 0.5 or 0.6. So I think it's not so bad that it's going to force a change in the Fed outlook.
2: You, you still don't think it's going to force. So what is the outlook at this point that they're basically done?
3: Well, I think they're going to skip in September and then revisit uh, at the next meeting on November 1st. I have one more hike at that November meeting, but I think the markets are kind of split evenly on whether that's going to happen.
2: And you watch the reporting from our Steve, from Nick Timmeros. You watch the Fed language, and Steve uh, signaled this last week that they're, they're starting to kind of come down from, it seems like the to airing on the side of caution for Fed officials is no longer airing on the side of more hikes, maybe airing on the side of pausing. So if that's true, is that because of the moderation we've seen, for instance, in the monthly jobs numbers, that kind of thing?
3: Yeah, I think, well, the, the lower inflation numbers have certainly given them a little breathing room. And now it's a matter of also seeing if there's a follow-up on the economic side. I mean, one thing that's been kind of interesting, and Chairman Powell and others have discussed it, is that even as the inflation numbers have been softer, the real economy has done quite well, right? So you know, you've know you had good GDP numbers the first half of the year. It looks like Q3 is gonna be very strong. The job market has moderated, but it's still quite healthy. So the Fed is actually, I think, looking for more of a moderation on the, on the real side of the economy um, and that's going to play in just as much as inflation to what they do.
2: And to our Steve Leisman, Steve, one of the things that strikes me about the data lately is you can almost pick any data points to tell your story because you have a set of data points pointing to a slowdown, payrolls, you know, I mentioned the GDI, the income side of things this morning. The St. Louis Feds now cast as negative. On the other hand, the Atlanta Fed still over 5%. There's Bill Gates leaving the AI meeting, by the way, declining to speak with reporters waiting outside. So it, it feels like both camps can tell a story. And that means, I guess, that we don't have enough information now to see which way this breaks.
1: No, and I think that's the way the Fed is breaking in terms of, hey, uh, there's some stuff going on right now. There's this surge in energy prices. That, you know, uh, I think if you ask the Fed official, they tell you this. I don't expect oil, uh, the, the price per barrel to go up $10 every month, but it did go up. Uh, I think it was 70, uh, 82 to 89 or whatever it was. Uh, and by the way, a lot of that was, may not have been in the August number, so there may be worse to come. Um, I, I, I want to go back to what you said earlier. I do think the Fed would like to stop here. That doesn't mean they will stop here. I think they would like to stop here and kind of see what those 500 basis points of interest rate increases has wrought when it comes to the economy. But I don't think that they know that for sure. And I think you're going to get a couple more months of data. And my new thinking on this, Kelly, is um, it would take a good amount of bad news to get the, get the hike again. But I'm just thinking that if they do hike again, one might not be enough. I just don't know what a quarter point does if indeed <laughs> they're in a situation, for example, of rising uh, inflation again, or they feel like they haven't done enough, I don't think one more quarter is going to do it. I think you could probably be in for an additional 50. But just to say that, the bar for getting there is pretty high. If the Fed, I think, gets to a point where they're going to be hiking more, I think they'll hike more than once more.
2: Yeah. Stephen Stanley, I kind of take the point. I mean, this is the case the bears have been making, which is that either the economy slows down or it doesn't, and then the Fed keeps hiking. So that one way or the other, you kind of get to this outcome. Do you really think a Goldilocks soft landing scenario? And I've read what Goldman says. I understand the case they're making. But do you think it's really possible? It's
3: possible. um, But it's threading a a needle, right? We haven't seen it uh, successfully pulled off very often. I I think that um, we've, you know, as I said before, we've had a lot of progress on inflation. But I think from here to 2% is going to be a tough road. And the Fed's to have to be vigilant as well as patient
2: last question to you if you had to kind of rank the data right now what's number one number two number three for the markets in terms of moving the needle do you think
3: well i think inflation still has to be number one but for me right now number two would be the consumer mm-hmm. because the consumer was very strong in june and in july so you'd expect to see a slowdown in the consumer in the next few months especially with the student loan repayments coming into place and all the rest and if we don't see that, then I think that's definitely a sign that the economy has a lot more momentum than, uh, than, than we thought.
2: All right. We'll leave it there. Mr. Leisman, quick final point.
1: Yeah, I would just add rental and shelter prices. I think that True. could solve a big problem in a big way for the Federal Reserve if one-third of the index starts to come down in a more meaningful way.
2: Yeah, a big tailwind uh, for the deflationistas next year. Gentlemen, thank you both. Stephen Stanley and our Steve Leesman. we really appreciate it. Let's get to the results of the 30-year auction top of the hour with yields lower on the day. Rick, how to go?
4: It did not go well. This was the last of $99 billion in Treasury coupon supply in the form of 30-year bonds. $20 billion i them reopened from an issue originally open one month ago. The yield, 4.345. Where was the one-issued market? One basis point lower. It had a one basis point tail. Never good. Uh, D as in dog is the grade. Pretty much, uh, there was only one metric that I was impressed with, and that metric was 19.7 on direct bidders, that was solid. And the bid to cover wasn't bad at 2.46. But indirect bids at 64.5, that's the weakest of the year, actually going all the way back to December of last year. And if you look at dealers, they took 15.8%. That's the largest amount since April of last year. And remember, when dealers have a lot of leftovers it's because customers picked it over and weren't interested. And that's exactly the case here. And I'll tell you what, uh, I think that today's numbers at 8.30 Eastern had a lot to do with it. We could talk and talk and talk and say the emperor has a tuxedo on, but in the end, it was a hotter than expected CPI report the story why the market yields are moving lower well that's a different subject altogether many believe it's because there's a slowing whether you look towards germany whether you look towards the uk or whether you put a weather vane up and realize that those breezes may be heading to the u.s but in either case it was a rough auction of complete the supply and it underscores that investors are paying very close attention to these levels because we're at a fulcrum here in interest rates some believe. This is the highs. Others believe we're going to stay here a while and continue to grind away like that four and a quarter level we see from both directions in 10-year note yields. Kelly and the gang, back to you.
2: This is where the battle lines are drawn. That's for sure, Rick. Thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Speaking of battle lines, let's get to shares of Apple, the unveiling of the iPhone 15, not helping reverse the slide in the stock, which is now done more than 6% year to uh, month to date, half a percent today and trading around 175. My next guest says Apple is a shrinking company and is overvalued at 30 times earnings. Joining me now is Bill Miller, the fourth chairman and chief investment officer of Miller Value Partners. It's great to see you, Bill. Welcome.
5: Thanks for having me, Kelly. Excited to be here.
2: I've been thinking about you the last few months as Apple's share price has uh, not performed so well, and you might say there's more to it than just a pullback.
5: That's right. Well, I think somebody needs to tell the market that Apple is a shrinking company trading at a growth uh, company multiple. Um, If you think about the scale of Apple, as large as it is, in fact, if you think about the market as a whole and its constituencies, we're at a really interesting point in that 2% of the names in the market collectively comprise 33% of the market cap. Wow. That's because these mega cap companies are trading at very, very high multiples. That, that by the way, 33% of the market for the top 2% of names, that's an all-time high going back to the 70s. It's, it's uh, roughly on par with those levels. But if you just think about what it takes for Apple to grow from a $395 billion revenue base, you think about, okay, the economy grew at 6% in Q two, nominal. Let's take six percent of 395 billion dollars that's 24 billion dollars in revenues that's mcdonald's revenues that's charles schwab revenues it took decades to create these companies so to actually grow from this base is a very hard thing to do Yet it trades at 30 times earnings, which implies a high expectation for continued growth.
2: Where do you think fair value is? So the stock's around 175. It doesn't sound like you've been shorting it per se, because this would be a tough thing to do, to do an almost $3 trillion company. Um, But they are doing a lot of things. Listen, on the financial engineering front, you know, the share count's fallen by like 30 percent or more over the past decade. They've done a ton of share buybacks. I mean, They seem to be very eyes wide open to the realities that you're describing.
5: That's fair. There's obviously optionality. I mean, they could fire people, they could cut expenses, but most companies don't cut their way to greatness either. So uh, there is optionality there. It obviously generates a ton of cash flow. It's in every single, be a ton of people's hands around the world all the time. But again, that scale is a very hard thing to uh, overcome.
2: We spoke with Paul Meeks yesterday, who was also quite bearish about the company. And uh, by the way, there's Mark Zuckerberg exiting the uh, meeting of AI leaders uh, on Capitol Hill today. Uh, we're out there waiting to see if anyone wants to make additional comments to the press, which so far he and Bill Gates have declined to do. Uh, but Bill, as we talk about Apple, our guest yesterday said they missed their opportunity to buy a Tesla or to buy a, I think he might've used the Disney example. Maybe, maybe they still have that chance now. Could they, should they do something transformative that would make you more bullish?
5: Well, I think the track record of companies doing massive MA deals is generally not great. So I, that's probably not something I'd be looking to do if I ran the company. But, it, you know, theres I'm not sure exactly how they create value from here. But as an investor, what I think about is, what do I want to be buying? I want to be buying smaller to mid-cap companies whose valuations are nowhere near what these massive companies are. There's actually a real limit to what these companies can do. So if you think about Apple growing, such a massively scalable, or it has been so scalable in the past, yeah, I mean, if you think about what it would require for them to, to grow, it's very, very challenging. And I guess, again, you can cut stuff out, but there, there's not – they're stuck here. So from an investor's perspective, we want to be buying things with big free cash flow yields, good management teams. They're allocating money in intelligent ways, buying back their shares, and, and, and are uh, certainly in tune with the situation.
2: What, so the multiple today – okay, it's 28. It's fallen back from from over 30. What would you buy it at, 20, 15?
5: Uh, I would be much more interested in the teens than I am at 30. That's for sure.
2: And that extends to a lot of the other, you know, uh, uh, NVIDIA was another example yesterday we were discussing where the guest I mentioned, uh, Paul Meeks, was saying, look, at 30-ish, uh, maybe it's 35 forward earnings, he thinks it could still have two years of growth left. So I, I just I throw it out there to you. I don't know if you've taken a deep look at it. But in terms of valuation, you can basically have the hottest thing that the economy's almost ever seen at 35 times or Apple at 28.
5: That's fair. I think another interesting comparison for NVIDIA would be Intel back in 2000 when Internet of Things was going to change the world. Uh, Intel stock traded in the 70s back in March of 2000, today it's at
4: 37.
5: Hmm. So again, expectations and reality are often inversely correlated. So if you have real high expectations for something, it's less likely that those expectations are gonna be met. So what we like to do is look around for things with low expectations where we think it's much easier to
2: surpass. Yeah. And I can't resist making the transition from everything you've just said to Bitcoin, because I would hear everything you just said and said, well, this guy for sure probably hates crypto. But the opposite remains the case. And you saw it. It touched, I think, 24,000 this week. You still is as excited as you once were?
5: Absolutely. Um, What's interesting about Bitcoin is if you look at uh, what happened with the Fed's balance sheet last year, it actually peaked in about April. And so Bitcoin's down since that time. And if you think about it over the very, very long term, these fiat currencies, they have to continue to print money. So if you look at the Fed's balance sheet over the past 100 years, it's grown at approximately the same rate as U.S. nominal GDP. And it will grow again. There's there's really no other option. Uh, right now, obviously, they're tightening conditions to try and slow stuff down. But at some point, they're going to, need to start printing dollars again. Not only that, you've got the havening of Bitcoin coming up next year where the marginal supply gets cut in half. And demand's probably not gonna change. So there's generally speaking, one way that situation resolves itself and that's mm-hmm. with the higher price. So we're optimistic on it. Again, we own the ton personally, we have some exposure to it through micro strategy and the funds. We're massively bullish on Bitcoin over the next few decades.
2: All right. And I won't belabor that point, but I do want to mention a couple of the other names that you like, Builders First Source and CoreWire. I mean, these are examples of kind of the smaller companies, better valuations. You like Chico's, you like Crocs, which I was wearing this morning. And real quickly on Stellantis, just dwell there for a second, because with everything that that seems to be happening with EVs coming out of China, I'm not sure why you'd want exposure to anything other than maybe Ferrari at this point.
5: Well, it comes down to valuation again. So Stellantis trades at one and a half times projections on this year's EBIT. Wow. That's a pretty low multiple when you look at something like uh, Apple. And by the way, Stellantis has room to grow, probably more room than Apple. Uh, You've got a really good CEO there executing against uh, a really good track record as well, doing what he said he's going to do. And they're allocating capital wisely and buying back shares. So we like Stellantis
2: a lot. Maybe then, and I, I know you don't usually take kind of a, a big thematic view, but I've heard investors recently arguing that Japanese and European companies are so much less expensive than U.S. ones. I, I get kind of allergic to going uh, outside of the U.S., but are there others that you think would be described as, as way more attractive, even in economies that appear to be stagnant?
5: Well, you bring up an interesting point around uh, geopolitics because there's some interesting risks going on. So certainly we like to stay in the U.S. right now. Um but there are bargains in the U.S. too. You just have to be selective and look for them and do the work.
2: Are you going to be in the Burks IPO? If you like Crocs, do you like Burks?
5: I got to do some more work on the valuation on the Berks stock. But Crocs is a very attractive stock. if You can have a three to five year holding period, I think.
2: All right, Bill, thank you so much. It's great to check in with you today. Really appreciate your time.
5: Thank you so much for having me, Kelly.
2: Bill Miller Quattro with Miller Value Partners. Still to come, oil hitting the highest level since last November before turning lower today. My next guest sees prices going even higher from here past $100 a barrel, both because and despite of Asia. He joins us to explain ahead. Plus, San Francisco offices have seen a mass exodus of people, but a new crop of commercial real estate developers are moving in. One of them joins me ahead with what makes him so bullish on the Bay Area. And as we head to break, here's a look across your markets with the Dow clinging on to about a 33-point gain, S&P up a third of a percent, NASDAQ up almost two-thirds of a percent. Russell's are in the red, though. And the 10-year note down to 424, an 11 basins point drop from the post-CPI hit this morning. We're back after this.
6: How about Captain Crunch's crunch berries with breakfast?
2: Whoa, Dad one Crunch
4: Island! <gasps> He's John Left Foot! And he stole our crunch! Quick, the zip line! He's getting away! Throw our last crunch berry! No! <laughs> no one steals my crunch berries!
0: I think you mean my crunch berries? Choose your own crunch venture with Captain Crunch!
2: Welcome back to the exchange. Oil prices hit their highest level since last November this morning before reversing lower, as you can see now. It came as the IEA says extended production cuts from Russia and Saudi Arabia could keep the market in a substantial supply deficit through the end of the year, ultimately sending prices much higher. My next guest agrees and says oil could even spike above $100 a barrel before year end. For more, let's bring in Francisco Blanche, head of Global Commodity and Derivatives Research at B of A Securities. Francisco, it's it's sort of a weird thing in the oil market where everyone's been making the same case for the past 18 months, and yet the price has gone from anywhere from $130 to like $65 a barrel. And I guess, where do we go from here?
7: Uh, hey, Kelly, uh, great to see you, and thanks for having me again. Um, Look, I think the market has been rallying uh, on on three main reasons, uh, supply, supply, and supply. We've had Saudi Arabia cutting production now for 12 months straight. Uh, We've seen Russia, uh, which was maximizing volumes in terms of exports for a good chunk of the past 12 months, uh, shifting gears uh, recently and joining the Saudis with uh, deep production cuts as well. And then we've also had plenty of refinery issues across Europe, across Asia and also in the US. So all of that's triggered uh, the run-up in prices. And then, of course, remember, demand is not great, but it's not bad either. So that's uh, likely going to lead to a sizable deficit and could push oil into triple digits before year-end. That's our view.
2: Yeah. And what would you say to the bears who, having been burned by maybe being long energy at the wrong time over the past year or so, would look at an Ed Morse at City or, or others and say, you know what, you know, once burned, twice shy?
7: Well, look, I mean, we, we've, uh, uh, we've seen, as I said before, uh, a, a very meaningful realignment of, of uh, supply forces here. Remember, Saudi Arabia and Russia, are the world's two largest exporters, and uh, uh, we've had a couple of very important signals in the past uh, week or so. First is we've had the Saudis, uh come out and extend the cuts into year-end um, at prices that were in the in the mid to high 80s. So that means they're not happy with the current price point. They probably want to see higher prices. That's kind of new. Uh, we've also seen, uh, of course, uh, a, a very important uh, change in, in, in supply dynamics in Russia, which um, is very visible when you look at uh, the Russian ruble, Russian macro finances, and, of course, the uh, strains we've seen in the Russian military and the paramilitary. Uh, Russia simply needs more money, and the strategy of maximizing volumes hasn't worked. So I think they're trying something different. Um, and then uh, to, to that, you must add that uh, inventories are actually growing. Uh, we've had some pretty big inventory growth this week. Uh, the latest satellite data points to 20 25 million barrel day uh, barrel draws over the course of a week um, which is consistent with with a roughly three million barrel a day deficit that we're going into so I think once inventories decline people will start really believing that that the market is going to tighten and uh and I think the question is when will Saudi Arabia and Russia become misaligned again mm. because they've spent much of the last 12 months misaligned uh Kelly.
2: Oh, that's interesting. A good kind of fun to think about. And finally, let's talk about, as you say, you know, this all rests on on Asia, kind of on both the supply and the demand aspect of it. But I am quite interested in what Chinese demand looks like when we're worried about the economy there and potentially uh, this all could hinge on whether they pick up momentum or don't.
7: Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I think the Chinese economy uh, is, is quite weak. But remember, it is weak as uh, so it relates to real estate. It's a weak uh, it is weak on the industrial side, and it's also weak on, on the tech sector. But if you look at other parts of the economy, things aren't that bad. I mean, in fact, uh, China has been recovering when it comes to travel, hospitality, leisure, the same things that that we've been buying in the West, in the U.S., and Europe for the past uh, couple of years, the Chinese are now buying, right? And those are services. And oil uh, is pretty geared towards services. So we think uh, overall... Uh, Chinese uh, demand uh, looks okay on the oil sides. continue to lead the world this year, will likely lead the world next year. Um, International flights are still down 50 percent in China. So it's a long way to recover Hmm. uh, to get back to pre-COVID levels. And and that we think is supportive. Even though, I I concur with you, the real estate sector is a mess, uh, as is the industrial side for China.
2: Very interesting. Real risk to the economy in some ways, although maybe 120, 130 is demand destruction. And the energy bulls would certainly love it uh, if this does keep going. Francisco, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it.
7: Thank you.
2: Francisco Blanche with B of A. Coming up, the Renaissance IPO ETF is higher this year. But if you drill down on the individual names and the 10 biggest IPOs of the past four years... They're down an average of 50% from their closing price on their first day of trade. A cautionary tale, if you're a retail investor looking to buy shares in ARM on IPO day, we'll delve into that ahead. And as we go to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with 3M, the biggest decliner with a 36-point gain overall. Uh, And Goldman and Honeywell are actually leading the way today. We're back after this. Don't go anywhere.
6: From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway,
8: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Uh, I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC News update. The husband of Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola died in a plane crash near St. Mary's in western Alaska. The Federal Aviation Administration said the plane crashed under unknown circumstances shortly after taking off Tuesday evening. The only passenger uh, was the pilot, Eugene Peltola uh, Jr. The investigators from the Transportation Safety Board are expected to arrive on the scene of the crash sometime Thursday. A judge ruled that former President Donald Trump may only review evidence in a secure place while preparing for his classified documents trial. Trump's team opposed security protocols for handling evidence and had asked to review documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Prosecutors had pushed for restrictions, saying it would be inappropriate to review documents in the same place where he is being accused of illegally storing them. And Major League Pickleball and the Professional Pickleball Tour have agreed to merge in what the league founder calls a unified professional pickleball organization. Thank goodness. A private equity firm, the tour owner, and MLP owners are backing the deal with a $50 million investment. The merger will halt the spending spree and competition between the two leagues as they have fought for top picklers. Kelly, back to you.
2: That is a sport to watch. I'll oh, a big tell one. you what. Thank you, Tyler. Yep. Coming up, breaking the doom loop. We'll talk to a real estate developer betting big on San Francisco, where he is seeing opportunity and why. That's next. Welcome back. Let's check in with Eamon Javers on Capitol Hill today as the meeting with tech executives with, on AI has now wrapped. Eamon, what's the latest?
9: Hey there, Kelly. Well, it's been kind of a wild scene out here on the sidewalk over the past couple of minutes. We've seen uh, Bill Gates walk out, Sundar Pichai walk out, Mark Zuckerberg uh, left the meeting. I had a chance to catch up uh, with Elon Musk and talk to him. He was in a fairly chatty mood, I have to say, Kelly. A lot of these CEOs just walking right by stone-faced with their security detail, not wanting to chat. Uh, Elon did pause and take a few questions, and I asked him how the meeting went. He said he thinks this was a historic meeting uh, in the room today. He also said that he thinks Thinks that some of the senators in the room anyway are considering a, really a radical overhaul of the way the U.S. government relates to AI. Take a listen to what he had to say.
1: I think the probability of there being some sort of AI regulatory agency that stands on its own similar to the FAA or FCC is likely at some point. You think so? I think so. Um, now, the, the, the reason that I've been such an advocate for uh, AI safety in advance of sort of anything terrible happening is that I think the consequences of AI going wrong are are severe, Um, so we have to be proactive rather than reactive. So as I was talking to Elon there, you
9: can get a sense that he's putting all this in a a vast sort of civilizational frame, right? I mean, he's talking about the potential for AI to do harm to civilization across the board. That's something you don't really hear on Capitol Hill a lot of talk about, right? And so you wonder how that kind of sort of idealistic or society-wide approach to AI merges with the sort of legalistic, legislative, and lobbying approach inside the building here of some of these other CEOs and executives who are attending this AI forum today how many of them are thinking of the future of human civilization and how many of them are thinking of the future of their company's bottom line that's the tension here at, at this meeting Kelly as we watch and wait for some of those CEOs to come back and we expect the rest of this session is going to go on throughout the afternoon without some of those big names but of course some important discussions still to come for the rest of the day back over to you
2: yeah a historical day I, I think uh, and it's interesting to watch the senators comments come in as well on, on what direction they think this is headed amen for now thank you we appreciate it we'll check Back in soon, our Eamon Jabbers in Washington. Meantime, the Bay Area has been a prominent example of what experts call the doom loop. As workers left during the pandemic, big tech companies downsized, residential and commercial vacancies soared. Homelessness and crime saw a big upswing and now workforces are reluctant to return to the offices there. The doom loop getting so bad that American Eagle Outfitters is suing the operators of Westfield Mall in San Francisco, claiming that over the past three years there have been more than 100 significant security incidents and that co-owners Westfield and Brookfield Properties let the mall fall into disarray. Worth noting, those two operators turned that mall over to their lender, saying back to you, uh, citing challenging operating conditions. That was back in June. A few months ago, CNBC contributor Julie Beal also warned investors of avoiding regional lenders with exposure to CRE, or commercial real estate in San Francisco, saying it's a city in decline. Hayman Capital's Kyle Bass told us office buildings should just be torn down rather than converted into something like residential properties there. But while it seems like most of America has given up on San Francisco, Our next guest says it could be a land of opportunity, even for commercial real estate developers like himself. Joining me now is Barry DiRamondo, chairman and CEO of West Coast property developer SteelWave. How's that for an intro, Barry?
10: Great. (laughs) Anything we
2: left out? I mean, the stakes are quite high here.
10: Yeah, you checked all the boxes.
2: But why do you, and and I'm being a little facetious, I mean, you're based in San Francisco. You you have a front row seat, which either could make you much more bearish or perhaps um, have no choice but to try to be hopeful about the the area's future.
10: Well, I think we understand that the market's a little more nuanced than the press is trying to paint it, right? I mean, look, if you own a trophy building, you know, office is sort of the the poster child for, you know, what's wrong in, in the real estate sector, commercial real sector right now. You know, it faces... The headwinds from the capital market sector, it faces headwinds from the work from home, you know, phenomena, Um, but the, and supply and demand metrics, right? But the capital markets thing applies to multifamily, industrial, retail, you know, so all the values are down. I just think that in the office sector, it's hyper magnified. Could you
2: give us some examples? I mean, and, and our audience is filled with opportunistic people who want to buy companies at one and a half times earnings and maybe would buy buildings if they're really dirt cheap. I mean, what are the, is it a valuation case that you see or do you see signs that people are returning or a little bit of both?
10: Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Look, in San Francisco, what was an, for a commodity building? And, and, and again, not all buildings are created equal. So commodity buildings I think what was trading for upwards of 850, maybe even more a foot, now is trading for between 150 and 250 Hmm. a foot, right? Um, But if you own a trophy building, you're pushing rents. Higher. Higher, right? So you've got this barbell effect. And, you know, I think, obviously, if you own a bunch of commodity buildings, you're not loving life mm-hmm. at the moment.
2: What, what happens to those buildings? I mean, who, if it's like this hot potato. You know, the, they're given back to the banks. The banks don't want them. They're trying to sell. You know, who's going to ultimately hold them? And, and can they convert them to residential or are they just going to tear them down? I
10: think the conversion to residential for most of the buildings in San Francisco is unrealistic. Um, but I will say there's two bets. There's two bets people are making. One bet is buy it so cheap that you can undercut rents and live forever. Mm -hmm. That's one bet. You know, the other bet is buy it so cheap you can convert the building into office space that people actually want to go to work in. Mm -hmm. We're the proponents of the second bet. So basically
2: you want to take existing office buildings, keep them as office. You're not converting them, but you're making them state of the art.
10: Exactly. You have to create an environment where people want to go back to work. You're competing with someone's couch. (laughs) Right. And and this is not new. You know, we've seen this happening in our markets for the last 20 years. It's just gotten to this crescendo where, you know, it's uh, it's something that people have to deal with. And and it's not a matter of can you push rents if you convert these buildings? It's a matter of there's a rent that will clear. You know, I believe that, you know, if you're commodity buildings, uh, there's no rental clearance in San Francisco. And it's no it's no different than mid block, Third Avenue of New York in New York Mm -hmm. versus Hudson Yards. Absolutely. Right. So you have to buy the buildings cheap enough in order to be able to afford to do the things you need to do to make it interesting.
2: Are there any other changes? You pick up Vornado, for instance, making a huge investment right around Penn Station here in New York because they think that proximity on the commute is one of the only ways you'll kind of get people back into the office. I don't know if you have any similar kinds of undercurrents where, where you
10: are. Well, I, I, there's no question. If, if you've got access to mass transit, that is, that, there's no question. That is a plus, plus. Um, and you know, if, if you're proximate to housing, that is a plus, right? So again, you can't paint the market with one broad brush.
2: How long is it going to take when you're looking at an office building? And first of all, you're getting it not not for pennies. You're talking about maybe, OK, 50, 60 percent discount, something like that. You have to do the massive investment to get this up to be a state of the art building. I have to imagine that's a big, you know, financial commitment. When do you expect the payoff to be? Is this a three, a five, a 10 year window? And and what does it depend on from the city's side of things?
10: Well, you're buying buildings at land value. They just happen to be coming with a building. Wow. Right? I mean, that, that's how cheap, you know, these buildings are. So, um, you know, from the standpoint of time frame, you know, I've been doing this a long time. You know, I, I've been doing this since the RTC, the GFC, you know, the dot-com bust, and, and now today. Call it what you want. Whatever you want to call it will have an acronym today, soon, yeah. <laughs> right? But, you know, all the markets that we're in are pretty tech-heavy. They're all very tech-dominated and they're high growth industries. That's the good news. The bad news is you go through these rapid decompressions at, at times like this. But every one of the recoveries in these tech hubs has always happened much quicker than anyone underwrote you know, at the bottom of the market. You know, how long does it take? I don't know. You know. My guess is the world's gonna look very different in 24 months from now.
2: Last question, you mentioned you con- your triangle of investment extends kind of from San Diego up to Seattle, down to Austin where would you put san francisco in terms of the rebound you expect by those cities is it going to come out first Uh, you know where where does it kind of stack up against the opportunities or or lack thereof that you might also see in a seattle and in austin we don't even talk about san diego
10: well given the fact that san francisco had the biggest run-up of all the markets we're in and the biggest downfall you know i would expect the run-up to start happening in san francisco sooner than many of the other markets, you know, capital markets, capital tends to pool in certain locations. It, it doesn't, you know, treat every location the same. And, and San Francisco is one of the markets where you've seen, you know, investors pool capital over time. And I, I would expect that to continue
2: fascinating. Barry, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Barry right. DiRamondo from Steelcase. Coming up, check out these two charts, both showing Kava shares. The first one is from its debut back on June 15th when it started trading. It soared uh, as much as 117% on its first day. It priced at 22, opened at 42, up 62% from that list price. But then look at this. If you track the action from the following trading day, June 16th, Kava shares are really down 19%, and it's definitely not the only public company down big lately could arms debut be different we will explore that next here on the exchange welcome back we're on the eve of it the chip designer arms much anticipated ipo expected to price after the close today and it's set to be the biggest listing we've seen in years now if you're thinking of buying in there are some warning signs out there deirdre bosa joins us now with that story deirdre
0: uh, Kelly, we kind of talked about this a few days ago, the idea that a lot of retail investors, they want to get into some of these big blockbuster names. They know, or they may have heard that Arm is in 99% of all smartphones. Instacart, right? It's a household name, but investors haven't actually been able to own a piece of it until that IPO date. But if we look at history, blockbuster IPOs and the hype and excitement around them, it doesn't usually pay off. I want to show you this chart, and it looks at seven of the biggest IPOs Over the last four years, it includes big names like Airbnb, Snowflake, DoorDash, Toast, etc. And you'll see that their return from their first day high, so the peak on their first day of trade, also known as that IPO pop, the returns have been miserable. I mean, even Snowflake, which is up 33% from its IPO price. It is down 50% from that first day high. You've also got UiPath and Rivian at the bottom of this list. They just haven't been good investors if you buy into the hype. And that's all to say, Kelly, that there may be a better time to buy these names, not just on the first day. We talked. Um, I think last week about Instacart. This one is really interesting. There's the chart I've been referring to. We talked about Instacart. Um, it is going public at a quarter of its last of its last private valuation funding round, 39 billion dollars. Now going public at under 10 billion dollar market cap. That could prove interesting because it maybe accounts for the slowing growth that the company has seen, and sort of the valuation disparity that has happened and the compression that's happened. So that could be one name where retail investors don't get left holding the bag. Yeah, this is
2: my uh, sort of time to say, you know, when we're all following this tomorrow to look at the open price for reference. You know, not the the IPO price is great for the company, for the bankers, for, um, you know, kind of that ecosystem. But in terms of what the public investor is going to get, it's really the open
0: price that matters. Absolutely. And take a name like Rivian. I feel like there's a few parallels, right? Rivian went public and was really able to cash in on the hype around electric vehicles. So it was a huge public offering. It also got to say, hey, look, we've got Ford and Amazon as investors in this IPO. So that created even more excitement for the retail investors. But look at this. Since IPO down 70%, it's down 80% from that first day pop um, Arm is in a different situation. Obviously, it is trying to capture the AI hype, but still it's at the very beginning of showing its investors how it's going to be in generative AI play. So requires a bit of belief. And also it has some of that hype because of its cornerstone investors. Every sort of big tech name has been thrown in the hat as a potential investor in this IPO. So again, it's sort of just a reminder and going back to that sort of big chart, a reminder that the first day pop isn't really indicative of what you could earn on these companies in the longer run.
2: All right, Deirdre, for now, thank you. It's going to be a busy, uh, busy day or two here, our Deirdre Bosa. Mm -hmm. Coming up, think tech is this year's best performing sector. It's really communication services. That's up more than 40 percent. But one strategist is finding some value there Uh, in this name in particular, down more than 14 percent year to date with a dividend yield now higher than its earnings multiple. These are my favorite stocks to talk about. I bet you can guess this one. Mystery chart reveal is next. Welcome back to the exchange. Mortgage demand just hit its low. When you think it can't go lower, uh, it's now at the lowest level since 1996. As rates continue to rise, especially with the move in the 10 year earlier today, well above that seven handle for mortgage rates, homebuilders are still outperforming as tight supply continues to plague the housing market. And despite that, the stocks are still also relatively cheap. Lennar trades just under nine times forward earnings. DR and KB Homes right around eight. Tolan Pulte still near seven. And my next guest is still a buyer. Chris Grisanti, MAI Capital Management's chief equity strategist, is here on set with me. It's great to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Gil. We first talked about these when they were like two and a half times earnings, right. and I do think this is a kind of fun place to start with you today. Why not declare victory? Wow, they've been on a great run, but you're not bailing on them yet, are you? No,
11: first of all, Kelly, they're, they're not that expensive. Uh, the demographics are super in your favor. I mean, there's lots of since the global financial crisis, lots of folks postpone buying. They're entering the market now. There's the demand short. Uh, excuse me, the supply shortage. But the the real thing is that these home builders are making so much money, they can afford to subsidize the mortgages. So if you get on the toll website, you'll get not a mortgage for seven and a half, which is kind of the average. You'll get one for five and a half. Wow. And you'll get it through Toll Mortgage Company. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, wow, I can afford to buy that house. And and you jump in. and, And the economics work, work for both parties, and the homebuilders is making a ton of money.
2: Is there a reason you like toll and NVR in particular? I mean, are you wary on the others, or just you like to do stocks instead no, of No, I mean,
11: everybody's got to do their own research. Yeah. We, we like these as kind of a barbell. N- NVR is like, I, I like calling them the Berkshire Hathaway. They never split their stock. They don't take any land risk. They're very conservative, and, and they keep marching ahead. But they're a little more expensive than the others. Toll Brothers is the high-end, average Price of a house at toll is is almost a million dollars. Wow! So, but they're giving these cheap mortgages. It's a very strong market. Uh, it's probably better than the entry level market. So, so f- we play that two different ways. But if you do the math, the honest answer is they're all very correlated, and they'll they'll work pretty close Ex- to that.
2: Exactly. Out. No, that's right. a great point. So let's kind of pivot from there to talk about L- the other parts of the market that are super cheap. I mean, Verizon is one example. Right. This is a, a fun stat. The dividend yield is now higher than the multiple. So maybe it's 8 and 8% and 7 or something right. like that, but what, isn't that traditionally a value trap kind of sign?
11: It could be, but, but I want to point out, Verizon, there's lots of companies that have a, a yield higher than the multiple, but they're, they're going out of business. Right. <laughs> this well. is an investment-grade company <laughs> that has an 8% safe yield, and, you know, they're not growing by leaps and bounds. This isn't a rocket science pick. This is more a sale close to shore these guys will hit their numbers it's investment grade it's at 7 times maybe it trades at 11 times over the next 2 or 3 years and you get a 50% up in the stock price and you're making 8% while you wait that that's
2: And this was the mystery chart we we showed before the break. So you're not saying you're going to buy this and maybe make five x your money. No. Is it is it good enough to get a stock that hopefully re rates on the multiple a few times and hopefully we dodge recession? You know, versus an area where you might be able to make a lot more than that more quickly, or at least that's the promise and the the way it feels in tech and other areas.
11: And and what's happening here is, is implicit in what I'm saying is it's the time to own a Verizon and not the time to. To try to find a five-bagger. I think we will look back at this moment in time and say, what were we thinking? The Fed has raised rates the fastest and the highest number of basis points in, in any of our careers, unless you were born in the Eisenhower administration or earlier. So. Um, it, it's going to have an effect and we but it's going to take a while because there's such strong momentum that's why i think the home builders can still do well but 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 i think next year is kind of cloudy and difficult
2: if it's cloudy and difficult what about the idea of owning tech because that's one area that seems like more of a sure thing you know it's it's not because they're they're sexy and high growth and what? it's because we can't, you know, even in a can't recession, without, right? they're the new staples. Right. I mean, and I know their price for that. But. Well, and
11: the devil's really in the details there, Kelly. I mean, it's valuation, valuation, valuation. So I like Amazon a lot because their fate is in their own hands. They're cost cutting now. They're delivering more to the bottom line. They're not building as many warehouses. And so they're delivering to the shareholder in ways that they weren't a couple of years ago. So that I like, but there's others with high multiples. And, and Apple, for example, is, is somewhat trouble, uh, problematic. It's a great Company, but it's a really high multiple. I, you know, we're old enough to remember Apple at twelve times earnings, not right. six or seven years ago. Right, so
2: right. When it it's was tough. it's just a hardware company, and you know, right. maybe maybe it's still right. is. you know, we've come full circle on the show now with our Apple Bear, so we'll leave it right there. Right. Chris, Fair thanks enough. so much for your time today. Good to be with you. Again, Always appreciate it. Chris Grisanti with MAI Capital Management. That does do it for the exchange today. You've been listening to the exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time.